Full disclosure, the section of scripture we're going to look at this morning is weird. I'm going to go ahead and get that out of the way. It's weird. It's strange. It's peculiar. As a matter of fact, if you weren't teaching expositionally, you might just avoid a passage like this altogether, but we don't because we teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter. As a matter of fact, if the Bible didn't tell us that something like this could happen, speaking with the gift of tongues, you might be inclined to think that's craziness. If you were unfamiliar with the Bible and I kind of laid out for you the doctrine of the gift of tongues, it's so kind of bizarre and out there that you would think no one in their right mind with the exception of Mormons could believe such a thing. And yet, the Bible teaches us something here. The Bible presents us an interesting doctrine. And so we're going to address it, we're going to look at it with prudency, with respect, with reverence, with an honesty. It's weird, but it's true. In our second study in the book of Acts, we established an important principle concerning the Holy Spirit that's essential to understanding our interactions with the Holy Spirit. I don't want to take too much time here, but it's important, especially with the scripture we'll be looking at this morning, to recap this important principle. And that is that the Bible presents for us three different prepositions when describing our interactions with the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. This means that each of the three Greek prepositions we find does two things. First, it defines a different interaction and they're designed to, to define what's produced from that interaction or the results of the interaction. And so each of these three Greek prepositions, first, it lets us know that there are different interactions, three of them, and that each of these interactions produces a different response, a different result in our lives. In John chapter 14, verse 17, Jesus presented for us the first two of these interactions. Jesus said, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, speaking of the Holy Spirit, but you know him for first, he dwells with you. And secondly, he will be in you. As mentioned, we're told that the Holy Spirit first dwells with you or with us. This preposition with is the word para. It literally means to come alongside. And the para ministry of the Holy Spirit, this interaction that we have with the Spirit of God, it's intending to produce conviction of sin for the purpose of drawing that person to Jesus Christ. This ministry of the Holy Spirit is prevalent in everyone's life, Christian or unbeliever. Conviction of sin with the purpose of bringing us to Jesus. Now, the second preposition that we find is that he will not just be with you, but will be in you. This is the Greek word in, E-N. It means to come within. It speaks of permanence. The in ministry of the Holy Spirit produces in the life of the believer regeneration when we're literally born again in the Spirit. This is for salvation. So he's with us, and then he comes into us. He's convicting us, bringing us to Jesus, and then at the point of conversion, the Spirit comes within us saving us, regenerating us, making us born again. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus presents for us the third interaction. Jesus said, but you shall receive power when, thirdly, the Holy Spirit 
comes upon you. This word upon is the Greek preposition epi. It literally means to come upon or to overflow or to overfill. Now, what's interesting about the epi ministry is that the epi ministry of the Holy Spirit, what we see in the first four verses of Acts chapter two, it yields not one result, but two results in the life of the believer. First, this overfilling of the Holy Spirit. It's designed to have an internal effect. The Holy Spirit provides power so that we can live the life that we've been called to, that we can live a righteous life. It's impossible for us to live the life that Jesus died to save us to live without the Spirit of God. In Romans chapter eight, the apostle Paul said, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. But you are not in the flesh, but you are now in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is not in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is why Paul says in Galatians 5 that the key to not fulfilling the lust of the flesh, the key to living the life of victory, he says, walk in the spirit. And then what will be the consequence? You shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then he says a few verses later, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. And so there is an eternal effect an internal effect of the Holy Spirit coming upon us. It enables us, it provides us power to live the life of righteousness. But secondly, there are external, internal effects and external effects. You see, the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes upon a believer, it produces tangible results from our lives. So in one aspect, it produces an internal result, but then there's an external result coming from us. And in two ways, we see this laid out in Scripture. First, there are fruit. It's kind of an interesting, interesting way of describing the result. But the Bible says that there is fruit produced from the Spirit. That as the Spirit reigns in our lives and is constantly filling us and refilling us and overfilling us, that the result is that, well, there's fruit produced. Godly attributes yielded as a byproduct of the Spirit's influence. Once again, Galatians 5, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's love. And then from that love is joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And so we see that there's fruit that's produced when the Holy Spirit is filling us and refilling us. That, that what's happening, there's a godly byproduct that we look more like Jesus, that we emulate Jesus. If you run through that list again, the fruit of the Spirit, it's the embodiment of Christ. And so the Spirit produces these things from our lives. But the second external byproduct of the Holy Spirit, in addition to fruit, is gifts. And gifts, I would define gifts, gifts of the Spirit, as godly equipping for ministry 
and the edification of the church. So fruit and gifts. Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 4, Paul says, For we have many members in one body. It's an interesting way of describing the church. But all the members of the church don't have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to each of us, let us use them. And then he says, prophecy. So these are some of the gifts that the Spirit of God, filling us and refilling us and overfilling us, produces. Now, we had made this comment early on in our study in Acts that I, I believe that oftentimes, though the Spirit works however he wants to, that more often than not, what the Spirit does, how we see gifts produced, is that the Holy Spirit he supernaturally manifests what has already been naturally given. That we are wired in such a way with different gifts and different talents and different personalities. Like, I have not been gifted with singing. So I don't care how much spirit I get, I might sing my heart out, but it still won't sound better. Why? Because my DNA means that I can't carry a tune. See what I'm saying? And so these gifts, he says prophecy and ministry and teaching. I think I kind of have maybe a little bit of that gift, still figuring it out. Exhortation. Some of you are gifted in that, that you're just a natural encourager. I'm also not very gifted there. Giving, leadership, mercy. And then Ephesians 4, verse 7 and 12, he says to each one of us, Paul says, uh, the grace that was given to the measure of Christ's gifts, he adds some more. He says some, apostles prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And why are these gifts given? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. You see, in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, we find recorded a gift of the Holy Spirit that has been given to this new church for an immediate manifestation. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, and then it yields a gift. We're told that they were filled with the Spirit, verse 4, and what happened? They began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, before we look at the gift of tongues, I want to point out something about the gifts. Once again, Paul writes extensively about it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says concerning the gifts of the Spirit, that they're not just limited to the gift of tongues. As mentioned, we've already laid out a list. We started with a list, but then he adds to it. He says there's diversity of gifts. But the manifestation of the Spirit, well, it's given to each one for the profit of all. And then he gives us more. Words of wisdom, words of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, the working of miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits. My mom had the discernment of spirits because you'd come home and you could never lie to her. Like she just knew that you were in trouble. And she knew you had been up to no good. And she would just look at you and be like, all right, go ahead and tell me because I'm going to find out. And it's like, oh, Holy Spirit, I can't believe you're doing that, my mom. That's not good for me. Then he says different kinds of tongues, the interpretation of tongues. Then he adds this caveat, but to one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So introduction. Now let's set the scene for a moment. We have 120 followers of Christ, disciples of Jesus, that have been obedient to Jesus' words, have been waiting for this outpouring of the Holy Spirit for 10 days, 
from his ascension to the day of Pentecost, they have been waiting. They're presently in the outer courtyard of the temple when suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. Now we know from Luke's account that the result of this sound was that everyone there, everyone present, all 120 were filled with the Holy Spirit. And the result of this filling is that each one began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is what the passage says. Now we have no idea how long this lasted. But from the context that Luke provides, it didn't take very long for a crowd of some considerable size and measure to gather. They're in a public area. It's the temple. It's packed. It's the day of Pentecost. Verse 5, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they all marveled. They were amazed, saying to one another, look, are not these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthenans, Medes, Elamites, those from the regions of Iran, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, that would be present-day Iraq, Judea, Israel, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Pergia, Pamphylia, Turkey or Asia Minor, Egypt, parts of Libya joining Cyrene, North Africa, visitors from Rome, Europe, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans or those from Crete, Grecians, and Arabs, those from Saudi Arabia. And they said that we hear them speaking in our own language, the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed, (laughs) perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others made fun of them or mocked, saying that they were full of new wine. Now, since Pentecost, as we mentioned last week, was the second of the three mandatory Jewish feasts, Jerusalem is packed. And Luke tells us a few important things about the crowd that has gathered. First, they were devout men. This word devout in the Greek, it it literally means they were extremely religious fellows. These men that had gathered, that hear the sound, that come, They were serious concerning the things of God. Now, this means that more than likely, because of the nature of who these men were, that they had also been present in Jerusalem for the first mandatory feast, that being Passover. Thus, they had exposure to some of the things that had taken place with Jesus. They had visited for Passover. Now they're present for the Feast of First Fruits. Now it would seem that this initial sound the sound of a rushing mighty wind. It, it was, it's what drew their attention. This explosion, this sound, it's booming through the temple precincts. It's what caused this multitude to kind of find out where the sound was coming from, the location in which the 120 had gathered. What they then hear coming from the 120, these disciples, it's what demanded further investigation. So they hear a sound, they come, then they hear what's being declared from the 120. That's what has them kind of a little interested. We're told that first they were confused. Literally, they're, they're confounded, bewildered, because everyone heard them 
speak in his own language. The crowd's initial reaction as they make their way to the scene was a peak curiosity because they're hearing their own native dialect from their own localized area. It was unique. It's what, it was an abnormality. And so they get there and, and, and they're confused because they're seeing a group of Galileans who are notorious for, for kind of having uh, rudimentary speech. A lot of the times uh, Galileans were uneducated. They weren't diverse or multilingual in the sense of, of their educational background. So they're looking at this group. They can tell they're Galileans. They're hearing from these Galileans their own native dialect. Now, we also are told that they were all amazed and marveled, saying, they're Galileans. We hear them speak each in our own language in which we were born. As the crowd takes a more detailed look into what's actually taking place, those present, what's, um, they're amazed and marveled. It, it kind of lends the idea that first they're confused, and then they just got no idea. Like they're trying to process what they're seeing and what they're hearing, but they're left just marveling. They have no explanation. Now our question, and it's an important question, is what's actually happening here? What's happening? What's taking place? What miracle is occurring? Now we're told right off from the beginning that the bystanders, that each of these devout Jews that came from all different regions, we're told that they heard them speak in their own language. Literally, they heard them speaking, which means they're kind of eavesdropping. It's the active tense from their own, in the Greek, diakletos, language. It's a native language, a native dialect. It's interesting. Not only are they hearing their native language, but they're hearing the unique dialect of their language. Now, this multitude they see that they're Galileans. There's no way these men can possess that kind of uh, uh, understanding of foreign languages. How is this happening? Now, there's a theory. There's a theory that has been developed mainly because, well, some people get weirded out by the gift of tongues. And so they kind of demystify the gift of tongues to try to provide, yes, a miraculous explanation, but one that maybe is a little easier for us to wrap our brains around they present this idea that the miracle occurred in the ears of the listeners and not from the mouths of the worshipers. Basically, the theory presents the idea that the 120 Holy Spirits poured out, they start praising God in their own natural language. But everyone present was able to understand what they were saying in their own natural language in their own native dialect, that the miracle was happening in their ears. That if you were just recording the event, that you're hearing them uh, declare these wonderful truths of God in either Greek or Aramaic, maybe Hebrew, but that the listeners are understanding these languages from their own perspective. Once again, the miracle happening in the ears of the listener, not the mouths of the worshipers. The problem the text doesn't substantiate that at all, not even slightly. While it is true that everyone who is listening is indeed hearing them speak in their own native language, Luke is also clear that those speaking are using a language that they couldn't possibly have known and therefore couldn't have possibly understood themselves. Luke starts off the whole section of scripture by saying the 120 disciples began to speak 
with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So they're hearing in their own diacletos or native language, but we know that they're speaking with tongues. This word tongues is the Greek word glossia, which means literally that they're speaking with a language and dialect distinct from their own language of origin. It gives you the idea that it was a language they didn't know. Although everyone in this society was bilingual, everyone knew Greek, the language of the empire. Everyone knew Aramaic, the language of the street. Probably most knew Hebrew because that was the, the, their native language growing up. This group from Galilee, there's no way that they could be proficient in much else. Now, to explain how this group of Galileans were able to communicate using languages they didn't know. So they speak with tongues, a language they don't know. The people hearing it confirm that it's a language of their natural origin. How is it happening? Well, Luke tells us that it was a supernatural manifestation. They began to speak with other tongues. How? After the filling of the Holy Spirit, as the Spirit then gave them utterance. Note, they're speaking as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance as a byproduct or a gifting of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Though each of them were an active participant by uttering the words, the words themselves, according to Luke, were manifested in a unique way by the Spirit of God. I know it's weird. We can all agree on that. But it's what the text is telling us. Luke also says that they spoke as the Spirit gave them utterance. And don't underestimate the importance of the word gave. You see, what was occurring within them and manifesting through them was, according to Luke, not a forced activity. Tongues was not given by the Holy Spirit to then be forcibly received. No, as with any gift. It's to be accepted, to be received, to be enjoyed. And in essence, these people, the 120, they were not forced participants in what was going on in the way that we might think of demon possession, that now they have no control over what's happening. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak in tongues and they're like in a trance. Their eyes roll back. They're just doing what they're doing, running around with no control. No. It was a partnership. The Holy Spirit filled them and then gave them so that it could then be received. The words are coming out, but the Holy Spirit's manifesting what's being said. Now, what are they saying? Well, Luke tells us that they were declaring, what? The wonderful works of God. And this small detail is critically important to not only our understanding of the gift of tongues, but to kind of weed out all the nonsense related to the gift of tongues. They're speaking under the power of the Spirit through a dialect foreign to them, but what are they speaking? The wonderful works of God. There is a concept you should be familiar with. It is called the law of first mention. The law of first mention is a principle for Bible interpretation, which states that the first place a doctrine is mentioned in Scripture presents for us fundamental truths inherent to uncovering the meaning 
of that particular doctrine. Acts chapter 2, the verses that we are looking at, present for us the first mention of the gift of tongues. And thus, this passage, it provides some truths for us that are essentially important, that are helpful for us to understand the gift of tongues, the gifts of the Spirit, and how they're to be used in the church. According to this passage, what do we know about the gift of tongues? Well, first, this might seem evident, obvious, Tongues is a manifestation of the filling of the Spirit of God. It exists. It's present that today there are people that can be filled with the Holy Spirit and can speak with the the gift of tongues, that this exists. It sounds crazy. It's weird. We see a lot of nonsense related to it, but it's still a gift of the Spirit nonetheless. Acts 2 is clear. Verse four, they were filled with the Spirit and spoke with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. You can't deny what Luke's telling us. Now, though there are many within Christian circles that try to play down this gift, not only is it clear that it's real, it's a spiritual phenomenon presented in Acts 2, but you know what? Jesus predicted that this would happen. If you recall back in our final study in the Gospel of Mark, verse 17, that these, Jesus saying, are some of the signs, byproducts, that will accompany believers or Christians. They will throw out demons in my name. He lists some things, but he says, they will speak with new tongues. So Jesus predicted that the gift would exist within the church. Also, the Apostle Paul writes about the gift more than anyone else extensively, even going so far as to defend the, the use of the gift. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 39, so my brothers, earnestly desire prophecy, but do not forbid speaking in tongues. Paul would even describe his own uh, relationship with this gift, saying that I speak in tongues more than you all. It was present in his own life, thus he wrote extensively about it. So first, tongues is a manifestation of the feeling of the Holy Spirit. If you believe that this upon this epi ministry can happen, then you believe that tongues is a byproduct. Secondly, tongues enables a believer to worship God in a deeper way. According to Acts 2 verse 11, Why was the gift given? The law first mentioned. The gift was given for them to preach. Mm -mm. Was it to communicate to one another? Mm -mm. No, we're told that the gift enabled them to do what? To declare the wonderful works of God using language that they didn't know and they couldn't understand. Now you might think, well, why would I want to worship God using a language that I don't know and I can't understand. Let me ask, have you ever been in a moment so filled with wonder, so overcome with emotion about a person, a spouse, a child, someone you loved, that you find yourself just let down by the English language? I mean, we use love 
to just find like everything. I love my wife, I love ice cream, and I love my dog, but that's all different. And yet I'm only given one word, right? Like, the, like language in general, the English language in particular, it's limiting in regards to allowing us or enabling us to communicate what we really might be feeling, a sense of wonderment. You see your bride walking down the aisle. There's not a word that could come out of my mouth that would relate to what I'm feeling. Not a word, not an emoticon. There's nothing that I'm going to be able to use to define what I'm feeling. Language is limiting. And sometimes it hinders our ability to express ourselves, to see my son born. I got no words for that. I've got a lot of emotions, but the words that come out just seem stupid. Wow. Great, Zach, you just used a three-letter word to describe that moment. Awesome, great, we're progressing. I mean, really, we're limited. You know, when it comes to our relationship with God, the gift of tongues has been designed to be the solution to this frustration. You see, tongues. Tongues is a gift of the Holy Spirit that provides a person with a form of communication whereby they can express themselves to God beyond the limitations of their personal knowledge and understanding based on their native language. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit does what? He helps us in our weakness. For sometimes we don't know what to pray as we ought, but what happens? The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. I believe Paul's describing this enabling of the Spirit to express ourselves beyond the limitations of language. You know, language is an interesting thing. In its most simplistic definition, language is an agreement between two people. Societally, language develops when people agree that certain sounds create certain words, and these individual words possess definitive meaning. Having a two-year-old around the house is a great example of how this develops. Sounds mean words, Quincy, and words have meaning, and also carry consequence. No, that means something. That sound, it's a word. You need to familiarize yourself, boy, with that word. No, you need to figure out what that means. I'll help you figure out what that means. Like, that's how language works. Now, what makes tongues special is that when we express ourselves using this gifting, we are entering into an entirely different agreement with God based not on understanding, but entirely upon faith. Practically, because I don't know exactly what I'm saying when I'm speaking in tongues. I'm just expressing myself and the spirit is meeting me and, and communicating something to God that is glorious. And I don't get it, but there's like this release that's happening in my heart. You see, it enables me to express my desires to God without restriction of logic, without the restrictions of reason. You see, tongues is a pure function that transcends my brain and allows me to speak directly from my heart, believing that God knows what I'm saying. 
even if my brain doesn't have a clue. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 14, Paul says, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Now note, as we find demonstrated in Acts chapter 2, the first mention, the gift of tongues served to provide a conduit by which the believers could express themselves to God, not to each other. See, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2 says, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. Now, there are people who are understanding, who are present, who are understanding what, what they're saying. They tell us what they're saying, that they're declaring the wonderful works of God. But the only reason that they understood what was being said is because of the diversity within the crowd. That they were from all different kinds of nationalities. They were all Jews, but they were from different countries. They had different native languages, and thus they could hear certain dialects. They could, There's no way they know that, but I understand it. So they don't know what they're saying, but I get it. That's just a byproduct of them being multilingual. They're not speaking to them. They're not declaring the wonderful works of God so that this group would get saved. It's interesting. When Peter stood up to preach, tongues ceased. They didn't need the gift of tongues to preach. They had a common singular language. It's called Greek. They didn't need to speak in such a supernatural way to communicate all the good things about Jesus so that people could get saved. That's not how it's working. Peter would tell them what's happening. He would tell them about Jesus, but he would do so, tongues would cease, he would preach in Greek. You know, contrary to what some have claimed, tongues was not manifested by the Spirit so that this large, diverse crowd would be able to hear the gospel of Jesus presented in their own language. The text doesn't say this, and it's unnecessary since the crowd had a common language. One of the other things that makes tongues unique is that unlike other gifts, of the Holy Spirit, it's given for a different reason. All the other gifts are given for the edification of the church. But we're told that tongues is given for the edification of the person. It's different. It's kind of its own category. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 4, Paul says, the one who speaks in a tongue does what? He builds himself up. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Jude chapter 1, verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying, and what? In the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 19. Paul says, in church, I'd rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Now, here's the caveat. Those scriptures clear that tongues has a huge place in the devotional life of the believer. And scripture's clear that it's a very limited role in the corporate life of the church. That doesn't mean that the gift can't be used in certain applications to edify the church. That said, in order for tongues to be used in the church assembly to edify everyone present, not just the person speaking, Paul says it has to be accompanied by another gift the gift of interpretation. He says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at most three. In each turn, let there be an interpretation. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. You see, obviously, in order for us to be edified, we would need to know what you're saying. If we know what you're saying, we can be edified. Wow. 
I hear what Nicole's saying to Jesus, this cry of her heart to Jesus. Wow, that encourages me, that edifies me. But if there's no interpretation, then I can't be edified. Thus, if there's no interpretation, tongues shouldn't exist. Now, there's another reason why the gift of tongues is limited in the corporate life of the church. And it's the weirded out factor. <laughs> Let's be honest. Paul was honest. Paul says, if therefore the whole church comes together and everyone starts speaking in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, they will say, you are out of your minds. And that doesn't accomplish much of anything. See, this is the consideration that we should have. Now, the third thing we take from this passage, first mention, is that tongues are given by the Spirit to be used under the directive of the Spirit. Look again. They began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Spirit gave them a gift, gave them the utterance as they spoke. It wasn't forced. The Spirit's role was simply providing them the enablement to express the desires of their heart through this gift. He guided the process, but he never forced it. Think about it this way. Most parents who finally break down and give their teenager a cell phone as a Christmas gift. They do so with the intention of opening a line of communication with the child that's now gaining more freedom. Wise parents, in addition to giving the cell phone, they don't give it without also establishing what? Set of parameters for how the phone should be used. Well, you can text between the hours of here and here. You have a specific data plan. These are the restrictions we're gonna place, et cetera, et cetera. You answer when I call. You see, the giver of the phone has the right to establish parameters because the giver understands how best to maximize the gift while avoid dangerous misuse. You give your kid a phone, a gift. But because you're the giver, you have every right to set parameters for how it should be used because you know how it should be used and you know how it shouldn't. You see, Scripture is clear that there are parameters by which the gift of tongues should be used, that they should be used first in a responsible way. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. How is it then, brother? Whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation, but Paul's clear. Make sure that whatever you do is done for edification. He says it a little more simply in verse 40 of the same chapter, let everything be done decently and in order. In addition to the obvious parameters set up by God for how tongues is supposed to be handled and the assembly of the church, understand gifts the gift of tongues, all gifts, but we'll just focus it on the gift of tongues, are to be used in a supernaturally natural way, not a supernaturally weird way. I think we understand what we're saying. Also, Scripture is clear that tongues, it's not given to every believer. Like, just, just because you've never spoken in the gift of tongues doesn't somehow make you like, like a B-grade Christian, like the A-team speaking tongues, the really spiritual people connected to the mothership. Yeah, you're connected to a mothership. And that it's the, the people who don't that somehow are like 
really missing out on things. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, that you are the body of Christ, members individually, and God appointed these in the church. And he listed out a bunch of things, including varieties of tongues. But then he says, are all prophets? Are all apostles? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have the gift of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? He says, earnestly desire the, the best gifts. I'll show you a more excellent way. Now, now, if Paul would say, does everyone have these gifts, but they're given to everyone, that, that would be contradictory. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, I think Paul once again says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by our Lord, attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders, various miracles by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed how? According to his will. That God equips us with gifts depending on what we need and who we are. Because the Bible states that not all gifts are given to everyone, contrary to what some in the Pentecostal movement teach, it is wrong to see speaking in tongues as the primary evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. I think that that is a grave mistake, unbiblically founded. Now the reaction. The reaction of the crowd. Twofold. There was a contingency of people, well, and we can understand it, right? who mocked what they were saying. Luke says that they, they were saying, well, they're full of new wine. <laughs> like they rationalized what they were seeing by asserting that everyone present in the group, well, they kicked back one too many brewskis, you know what I mean? Now, this accusation is obviously unfounded. We'll get to it next week, but you know, I've never met a drunk who could speak in languages they didn't know. They might have thought that they were speaking in languages that they didn't know, but I've never met a drunk that was speaking in tongues. I've never really met a drunk that was in the moment declaring the wonderful works of God. Like that's not exactly the typical byproduct of getting plastered. Secondly, the majority of people you had those that mocked, but the majority were intrigued. Intrigued enough to ask a question. Luke says that they were saying, what could this mean? What was happening was so far out that they were left with nothing but questions. And you know, that's not a bad place to be because God, God loves to give answers to questions. The reaction of the crowd, the mockers, and this question, what could this mean? It sets the stage for what happens next. Tongue ceases, and we see that Peter stands up. And Peter defends against the accusation of drunkenness. And then he turns around, and he explains what's really happening from a biblical standpoint. So, Father, 